0: Hi, I'm Paul Havershood, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money.
1: Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are gonna have to eat that real wage loss.
0: And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or
1: wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to The Dose. We're in a critical phase of the COVID-19 pandemic. Infections are continuing to skyrocket and we all have to make some short-term sacrifices to flatten the curve. But the good news is there's light at the end of the tunnel. That's because there are now two COVID-19 vaccine candidates that are very promising. Late-stage clinical trials suggest they may be more than 90% effective. And the Canadian government has signed deals with both manufacturers. So if they're approved by Health Canada, experts say they should be available to us sometime next year. But a new vaccine, of course, raises lots of questions from its safety profile to who will get it first in a country of more than 37 million people. So today we're asking the question, What do I need to know as we get closer to a COVID-19 vaccine? To help us answer that, I'm joined by Dr. Jeff Kwong. He's both an epidemiologist and a family physician. Dr. Kwong is also the interim director of the Centre for Vaccine-Preventable Diseases at the University of Toronto. Hi, Dr. Kwong. Welcome to The Dose. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's start with the two vaccine candidates that are generating so much excitement because of their promising clinical trial results. One is made by Pfizer and one is made by Moderna. And they both use something called messenger RNA technology. What is that and how does it work?
0: Yeah, it's um, a new technology that's um, never been used before in terms of commercial vaccines. And what they've done is they've taken uh, bits of genetic material and then that gets injected. And you know, when it gets into the cells, it actually gets your body's cells to produce the proteins or antigens of the virus. Um, And then that stimulates the immune response. So we're not actually giving the virus to people, but we're just giving the genetic material of the virus so that we will generate uh, the antigens that will train our immune system to fight off the virus uh, if we ever do
1: see the virus. So that's very different from, say, a flu shot or the uh, measles vaccine, right? That's right. So with flu shots, we're actually giving
0: little bits of the actual virus. It's killed viruses, and it's just particles of the virus. Uh, And with like the measles vaccine is actually a a live version of the virus, but just a weakened uh, version of it. So those are what we call live attenuated vaccines. And so this is new technology where it's using mRNA. You know, they have done like made some vaccines with this technology, but none that have been you know put to commercial use yet.
1: And to be clear, there are also many other COVID-19 vaccine candidates that use inactive viruses in various stages of clinical trials right now.
0: Yeah, there's close to 200 different vaccine candidates uh, in development at various stages and using different types of technology that exist. What's interesting with this mRNA technology is that and why, you know, these two front runners are using them is because the process for manufacturing is a lot faster using this mRNA platform. And so that's why these two have come out ahead out of all, all the candidates.
1: As with so many aspects of COVID-19, there's a lot of misinformation circulating on social media. So I want to address something head on. Some people are afraid that the mRNA vaccine will somehow damage or change their own DNA. And that's not true, is it? That's right. It's actually not DNA, right? So it doesn't actually
0: have to enter the nucleus and doesn't affect our own genetic material is just taking advantage of our own body's machinery to generate the uh, antigens. So it's kind of like borrowing our cells to manufacture the antigens. Instead of making the antigens in cells or in eggs and then injecting that into the body, it's just putting the mRNA into our body and our cells are making the antigens. And so that's allowed things to happen much more quickly and it's more efficient that way.
1: So let's stick for a moment with the, with the two vaccine candidates and one by Pfizer and one, one by Moderna. How arduous a process would it be for these two to be approved by Health Canada, you know, given that we're in the middle of a pandemic? I think they need to first complete
0: their clinical trials. You know, each one of them had about like 30,000 participants. And so what was released in the past week or so were just the preliminary results that were announced uh, through press release. Typically, we wouldn't be you know, announcing results like this through press release, we would be, you know, waiting till the trial is completed, having them peer reviewed. And then, um, you know, at the same time, we can sometimes submit the data to the regulators for review and approval. And, you know, the regulators have committed to, you know, expediting the review. So hopefully the approval process uh, won't take very long, but we do have to wait for these trials to wrap up before we can have definitive claims that they're as highly effective as, you know, the as the reports this week.
1: And, and you know, you raise a good point here that's been talked about a lot in the last uh, week or week and a half since Pfizer's announcement and Moderna's announcement, as it, you know, it started up again, that the announcements were made by the companies in, as you called them, press releases. How much does that concern you, especially with the stakes being so high? I would hope that they would be very confident
0: about the results. You don't want to generate a lot of false hopes. I think that there are, have been a lot of people who have been urging caution the general tone is that we should be cautiously optimistic with these results. I mean, I think there's um, definitely a lot of hope out there, but we just have to wait and see, though. We can't bypass the process that needs to happen.
1: Let's leap ahead just a bit and assume that they are approved by Health Canada. What are some of the particular challenges in storing and distributing the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines?
0: Yeah, so my understanding is that the Pfizer
1: vaccine needs to be stored at minus 70 degrees
0: Celsius. So that presents some logistical challenges in that, you know, there's not a lot of places that have freezers that can keep things at minus 70. But I mean, I think that, you know, they can be overcome. So, you know, one strategy might be to use the Moderna vaccine in more rural settings and use the Pfizer vaccine in more urban settings, you know, where they might have access to those uh, refrigerators and where it wouldn't take so long, you know, to get from the freezer into people's arms. There are labs that do have those freezers, like some specimens are kept at such cold temperatures, but this wouldn't be found in every family doctor's office or every pharmacy, if that's for sure. So we just have to find out where these freezers are or like get them to where they need to be.
1: So that's another challenge, and it's a challenge that, that apparently is surmountable. But let's get to the next challenge, and, and, and that is how do you, how do we vaccinate millions and millions of people Potentially 37 million people in in Canada alone. I'm assuming that there won't be enough doses for everybody right out of the gate. So who gets vaccinated first? Well, the National
0: Advisory Committee on Immunizations, uh, otherwise known as NACI, which is a group of experts you know, from across the country, has come up with some uh, recommendations for key priority groups. The first being those at greatest risk of, of dying, more specifically, older uh, individuals, so people aged 70 or older. Also, people who are in contact with them, so at risk of transmitting to those people. So that would include healthcare workers, and perhaps household members, you know, people who live with older individuals. And then the third group uh, are essential workers. So people working on the front lines, emergency service workers, and uh, those working in the grocery stores. And then the fourth group were people at risk because of their living conditions. So, for instance, those living in remote communities where it may be hard for them to access health care, where there's large numbers of people in their household like with household crowding and making it very hard to self-isolate if there was COVID getting
1: in. So we might be talking, for instance, about First Nations, people living in crowded conditions, uh, homeless people, for instance. It, yeah. Is that, that, are those the, the kinds of calculations, the kinds of determinations that are being made?
0: Exactly. I mean, these are things that you know, need to be sorted out. And NACI can make these recommendations, but how it actually gets operationalized is something that will need to be sorted out by the provinces and territories.
1: Is there an expectation that, that the provinces will um, be taking their marching orders from NACI, or is it just an advisory group? It's an advisory group. So really, it's up to the provinces and territories to actually carry out
0: the immunization program. You know, there's variations between provinces in, you know, their populations, you know, their capacity and how they're going to deliver it. So I think it's up to each uh, province territory to decide decide how they're going to carry it out.
1: Canada's deputy chief public health officer has said he expects it will be possible to vaccinate the majority of the population by the end of 2021. Sounds ambitious to me. What has to happen to make that a reality? the number one thing is, you know, will
0: we have enough doses by that time? You know, will we, will we receive the shipments of all the doses that we need to make that happen? And if so, then I think, you know, it is possible. I mean, like our, our annual influenza vaccine campaigns, we vaccinate 30 or 40% of the population within a relatively short period of time. It's like October, November, December, you you know, so if you, Manage to have a sustained effort, or even ramp it up even further. You know, it may be possible to vaccinate everyone who wants to get vaccinated. I, I'm not sure that every single Canadian is going to get vaccinated, uh, even if it is offered for free and is shown to be a safe and effective vaccine. But the hope is that we can get everyone who wants to get vaccinated as quickly as possible. And I think if we have enough doses, I think there would be enough human resources to make it happen that we can get through the entire population. Over the course of 2021. But it will depend, I think, you know, on the very first point is like how quickly will we be getting our shipments of, of the vaccines and how many doses will there be?
1: Speaking of human resources, there there's been some talk out there about uh, uh, using the military to help uh, distribute and administer vaccine. Is that something you see happening?
0: Sure. I think that would
1: be welcomed
0: assistance. And I think particularly in remote areas, I think there's a lot of variation between provinces of who gives vaccines. In the past few years, we've seen a lot of provinces allow pharmacists to give vaccines. And so that has been a significant boost. So we're not talking about just family doctors and public health nurses, but now with pharmacists on board as well. I think between those three groups, um, that's you know a lot of vaccinators out there. And that will help a lot to get vaccines into people's arms.
1: You know, speaking of that, I, I think we know that the Pfizer product would require a booster administered three weeks later. Is it the same with the Moderna uh, vaccine candidate?
0: Yeah, my understanding is that both of them would require two doses. So that's another wrinkle. It's like it's one thing to get someone to come in once, but then to get them to come back for a second dose um, is is another additional challenge, but not insurmountable.
1: Uh, on white coat black art uh, our our sister show in the last few weeks we had a couple of uh medical officers of health we had we had some some physicians public health specialists talking about Uh, The current flu shot campaign is a dress rehearsal for a potential rollout of a COVID-19 vaccine. And I know that you've done a lot of research on on, uh, flu immunization. And, you know, this year we've already seen shortages of flu shots in many parts of the country. And I'm wondering what lessons do public health and government officials need to learn from this particular rollout to make the COVID-19 vaccination plan as successful as it can be?
0: Well, I think one key point that doesn't get a lot of attention is about the data collection. You know, I think some provinces have got things nailed down where they have functioning immunization registries, where they know exactly who's gotten which doses of which vaccine. And then there are other provinces which uh, have not yet developed immunization registries. So I think especially in the context of a COVID vaccine, where you need to get two doses, I think that's really important. So if someone shows up, Um, you can say, okay, uh, Mr. So-and-so you got your first dose only two weeks ago. You need to come back next week. You know, you're too early or to call people back and say, oh, don't forget to get your second dose. You know, without having a functioning immunization registry, it's a lot harder to do that. And it's a lot harder to keep track of like how many people have received one dose, how many people have received two doses, you know, so we can look at, you know, how well your program's operating and then to do research, you know, looking at, you know, safety, well, it's not just research, but just even like what we call the pharmacovigilance, monitoring the safety of the vaccine uh, and effectiveness of the vaccine. It's a lot harder to do if you don't have good quality data for doing that. So I think that's one key lesson that I think we need to try to focus on to make sure we get it right. I think that was one of the challenges when we had our H1N1 vaccine back in 2009, was the data weren't always collected in a very consistent manner. Hopefully for this campaign, we'll be able to have all the data collected in electronic format, you know, in real time. We'll be right back.
1: Amina is an activist during the Arab Spring. Her blog, Gay Girl in Damascus, attracts readers from around the world. When she's mysteriously abducted, her followers mobilize, desperate to save her. What they find shocks them. I'm Samira Moyeddin, the host of Gay Girl Gone, a new six-part series from CBC. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Although the vaccine trials are promising so far, uh, you know, as far as we know regarding, regarding the data that's actually been released with, uh, on the clinical trials, you know, we're looking at short-term results at best. What's your sense of how long immunity to COVID-19 will last uh, after vaccination in the real world, assuming people get the two shots when they're supposed to get them?
0: Yeah, I think that's, a, it's an excellent question. I mean, I think we are seeing case reports of people who have had natural infection get reinfected in you know, a relatively short period of time. It's been less than a year since the virus is even you know, known to us. And already we've had some case reports of people getting infected uh, twice. And so the question is, you know, how long does immunity last you know, with natural infection? And then how long will it last with immunity from the vaccine? And these are unknowns at this point. You know, it's possible that the immunity from a vaccine could actually be longer than from natural infection. We don't know. I mean, it's possible that we may need to get vaccines annually. We may need to get some combination of different vaccines so that they activate different parts of the immune system. Maybe we need vaccines, you know, with different antigens, uh, you know, to have the best immunity. I think these are things that are, we're going to be um, you know, looking into in the coming years.
1: I want to get at something we've just heard about fairly recently. The American Academy of Pediatrics is calling for COVID-19 vaccine trials to begin for children as soon as possible. And I think there may be an assumption out there that the vaccine was tested in, in, all, in all age groups. The Academy is saying that you can't just take the trial results from adults and apply them to children. And I want to know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean, I I would agree with that. I mean,
0: my guess is that these trials that have been done so far were only in adults. I think that was reasonable uh, given it's the first time. And and I think doing them in children would be really important. Their immune systems may be different. They have different levels of underlying immunity to different pathogens. So I think it is definitely important to do these trials in uh, the pediatric population as soon as possible.
1: And it's also important for parents to be able to trust that uh, these vaccines will be safe in children if, if they're going to have their kids vaccinated.
0: That's right. That's for sure. I guess one other thing I forgot to say is that, you know, I think there will be a lot of safety monitoring that's done after the trials. So I mean, these clinical trials, you know, have 30,000 people, it sounds like a lot of people, but sometimes, you know, you can have rare side effects, it, you know, it's going to be serious side effects that can happen in, you know, one in a hundred thousand or one in a million and we want to know what those risks are to help people make best decisions about whether they want to get the vaccine or not. And so we won't be able to do studies like that until like, millions of people have gotten the vaccine. But we want to have the system in place so that we can detect serious side effects from uh, you know, a new vaccine as soon as we possibly can. With COVID, you know, we've seen that it can be a very nasty infection and killing like about 1% of people who are getting infected. So I think it would take... A serious side effect to be really common to make that risk-benefit you know, equation not worth getting vaccinated, at least in my opinion.
1: So uh, just so that we're clear, can you spell out the steps that have to happen between now and getting the vaccine into into the arms of Canadians? Sure. So, I mean,
0: first, the clinical trials need to be completed and the data need to be reviewed by the regulators once the regulators uh, that in Canada, that would be Health Canada, you know, have approved the vaccine, then we need to receive our shipments. And then they'll be distributed to the provinces and territories who will then work on distributing it to their local health authorities or public health units, physician offices or hospitals or however they're going to roll it out uh, and then get it into people's arms.
1: You're a vaccine expert. You're also an epidemiologist watching COVID-19 infection rates climb right now quite steeply. And you're a family doctor, so you see the direct impact of that. Do you worry at all that people will be complacent about uh, critical measures that are necessary to stop the spread of infection now uh, because they see a vaccine on the horizon?
0: Yeah, that is a worry that I have. You know, I think that's why we need to keep tracking epidemiology and see where cases are headed. And I think, you know, things are not looking good right now. We need to get that message out so that people don't let their guards down and, and maintain the vigilance and you know, protecting themselves. I don't think it's that the news of the vaccine that's leading to people letting their guards down. It's more of the, I think, the pandemic fatigue.
1: Um, if you put your epidemiologist hat on right now, what's your message to Canadians about what they need to do right now while waiting for that vaccine?
0: Well, it's all the same things that we've been, people have been told for the past how many months. Maintain our physical distancing, wear our masks, keep hand washing, and really limit the number of people we have close contact with. Like ideally, just to your household members. And, you know, if you're in contact with anyone outside of your household, you should really be wearing a mask um, at all times. These are the things that we know they work. And if everyone just did that consistently, we would be able to get this under better control than we currently do.
1: You know I think one of the reasons why why scientists, why physicians, researchers were so excited by the the apparent efficacy rate based on preliminary studies is that is that the higher the greater the effectiveness of these vaccines, the lower the percentage of the population that 's necessary to be vaccinated in order to to provide a substantial amount of herd immunity
0: that 's right yeah, so I mean the based on what we understand about the what we call the reproductive number of covid it 's been estimated that we need something like um, like around 60% of the population to get the vaccine. But that's assuming that it's a 100% effective vaccine. So we might need a little bit more than that, you know, if it's like a 90 something percent effective. But if it's only 50% effective,
1: we basically need like
0: everyone to get vaccinated.
1: And it means therefore, the more effective the vaccine is, the, the more realistic it is to, to to hope for herd immunity through vaccination.
0: Yeah. So I think between people who have had it and then the people who are getting vaccinated, hopefully sometime by the end of 2021, we will achieve herd immunity so that, you know, the people who may not be able to get the vaccine for whatever reason can also be protected. Uh,
1: Thank you, Dr. Jeff Kwong, for for being on the dose and stay safe and healthy. Okay, you too. Take care. Bye bye now. Okay, bye now. That was Dr. Jeff Kwong, Interim Director of the Centre for Vaccine-Preventable Diseases at the University of Toronto. Here's your dose of smart advice. The early results show that both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines were better than 90% effective at preventing COVID infection. If those results are confirmed, it means that they have exceeded the expectations of experts, meaning it's more likely that a mass vaccination campaign can eventually achieve herd immunity. Just keep in mind that these results, though, are preliminary. We'll know more as soon as both companies release detailed reports of clinical trials. The vaccine has only been tested in adults. Since it's expected that children will be vaccinated as well, experts say kids should be included in studies of COVID vaccines as soon as possible. After that, it will be up to Health Canada to analyze the results to make sure the vaccines are both safe and effective and give them, and any others that become available, regulatory approval. After Health Canada approval comes a massive undertaking to manufacture, store, and distribute enough doses to vaccinate up to 37 million Canadians. Since there won't be enough to vaccinate everyone all at once, authorities will have to plan who gets to roll up their sleeves first. The National Advisory Committee on Immunization, or NACI, has recommended that vulnerable populations be among the first to get vaccinated. That includes seniors and those with medical conditions that put them at greater risk of COVID, as well as people who come into frequent contact with them. It also includes people in precarious housing and those who live in communities with high rates of infection. That could include remote First Nations communities. Healthcare workers would be at or near the top of the list, along with frontline workers, including first responders and those who work in essential industries such as grocery stores. The hope is that everyone will be vaccinated by the end of 2021. Until then, as we've said many times before, it's up to all of us to minimize the spread of the coronavirus by wearing masks, washing hands frequently, practicing physical distancing and limiting social contacts. If you have topics you'd like to hear on The Dose or questions you'd like answered, email us at thedose at cbc.ca. You can also tweet me at NightShiftMD or at CBCWhiteCoat using the hashtag TheDoseCBC. You can find The Dose and Whitecoat Blackheart wherever you get your podcasts. Please do us a favor and rate our shows highly so more people can find us. This episode of The Dose was produced by Nicole Ireland and Donna Dingwall with digital support from Fabiola Carletti. Special thanks to Lauda Antonelli for her technical expertise. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health. But if you're looking for medical advice, see your health care provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca
0: slash podcasts.